Welcome to Uncommons, I'm Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, and on this episode I explore the separation of powers, the role of courts versus the role of legislatures with sitting Federal Court of Appeal judge David Stratus. It's also personal as he's been a mentor to me and was a professor of mine at Queen's University, but I think it's also a first, a podcast conversation between a current member of Parliament and a sitting judge. David, thanks so much for joining me. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, it is not common by any means to have a sitting parliamentarian have this kind of interaction with someone in your position on the Federal Court of Appeal as a sitting judge. And yet we don't have the politicized system that we see south of the border on the bench. And maybe start out by explaining your role and the importance of independence and impartiality in your role. Sure. Uh, Thanks for having me. I think this is a terrific opportunity to explore the relationship between judges and legislators. And I hope people find it interesting and thought provoking. And as a result, gain an enriched appreciation of how our branches of government work. Um, My branch of government works like this. Our job is to interpret and apply the law to the facts. And in doing so, we're to be totally impartial, and we must always appear to be impartial. Sometimes we rule against decisions made by government and its agencies, and sometimes we don't. We call it objectively and fearlessly based on the evidence and the law, and nothing else enters into the equation. So so to take this example, uh, our chat today, the fact that we're having this chat is irrelevant. And I'll tell you, Nate, if you vote on legislation or sponsor legislation that's constitutionally invalid, I won't hesitate to rule it invalid. Uh, and, and you know, if your government makes a decision that's contrary to law, and I'm persuaded on the facts and the law that it should be struck, I will strike it. That's how we roll. That's our role. <laughs> and I will hopefully not vote for such legislation, even if my government passes it. <laughs> but, uh, but absolutely right. And an and, uh, uh, important point to make also, you would take the same view of legislation put forward by a former student as you would by legislation put forward by the government or the individual who appointed you to the bank. Absolutely. And, and so, I mean, we have the process seen... is irrelevant. Once we're appointed, the Constitution gives us complete independence. The government of the day can't fiddle with our salary. They can't have secret talks with us on the phone. God knows they can't bribe us in any way, shape, or form. We are in a bubble and totally independent, and we will call it exactly as we see it, objectively, fairly, and fearlessly. And we are... That's our democracy. Well, and we are lucky in Canada in that respect, and, and to highlight, just as one example, where we see from the Harper years, the judges in senior positions at the Supreme Court and otherwise, who have been some of the most high profile judges to strike down legislation put forward by that very government. So often we see that kind of independence and impartiality, regardless of the background politics that might have been in play in the appointment process to begin with. Well, that's right. You know, um, in the legal profession for practicing lawyers, the idea that they would steal from a trust fund or or disclose private information of a client, that is about the highest sin and, you know, in innermost uh, core of being a lawyer is to respect those principles. Well, what I discovered when I was appointed a judge is that we too are a profession And at the core of our profession is this idea that we will call it objectively, fearlessly, and fairly on the facts and the law. And we will not allow personal views or other irrelevant considerations to taint the analysis. We call it as we see it, and the public deserves no less. Now, even when you were a professor at Queen's, obviously you were practicing at Heenan at the same time, and you were... I don't know how you had the time, but you were finding your way to get to Queens every Friday and teaching a constitutional law class, and I was lucky enough to, to take it. But even then, you were, I recall, prolific in your writing, but also quite careful in your willingness to take firm stands on the issues where you would play devil's advocate, you would play both sides, and it was never clear 
at all times what your personal view was on a particular issue. Was being a judge a goal at that time? Was Were you cognizant at that time of, of not being so vocal on one issue or another, knowing that you were interested in this more impartial and independent role one day? Well, I think in the classroom, I was uh, quite frank. And, uh, but it isn't a free speech opportunity for me to indoctrinate the students. Rather, as you'll recall, it was a lot like this podcast. It was about putting ideas on the table to educate people, to have them think and reflect on the nature of our system. That was my job as a teacher in the classroom for the students. And it's not so much about me trying to, to, to shove my views and indoctrinate my students. Now, at the time, did I secretly harbor the wish to be a judge? I will tell you that I had an application in at the time, and I think within a week of the last class, I was appointed as a judge. So it was very much on my mind at the time. But you alluded to something that really explains why I wanted to be a judge. It is the love of law. It is about a desire that the doctrine that makes up law, cases and laws, and how we work with them and reason with them, all in the public interest. Uh, this has always fascinated me. And as a judge, it's sort of the application of all of those thoughts, doing it on the ground, serving the public by developing the doctrine and applying it as best as you can to the facts of each case. And you seem from the get-go to have been seriously devoted to the law. So you clerked for Bertha Wilson. That's right. You went on to have a, a very high-profile practice in many ways where you were appearing at the highest levels of court uh, in appellate advocacy and on constitutional matters, on administrative matters, of which you have published a great deal. And you... Obviously now you're prolific in your own writing in terms of releasing judgments as well, but was it always, you just knew you wanted to follow the law? What, what, what drew you to it in the first instance? <laughs> I'll tell you a story. Um, when I was three, I was getting my tonsils out and I was a precocious three-year-old and I really didn't want to have my tonsils out. And I was dragged off to the hospital and it was a scary and they put me on the operating table. And of course, they, 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 at that time anyway, or that group of people, they tricked the child into getting anesthetized. And so they put this black balloon in front of me. And they said, we want you to blow this balloon as big as you can and make it burst. And of course, inside the balloon was a little puff of the anesthetic or what have you, so that when I took that intake of air <gasps> to blow, I passed right out. And it must have been a hell of a good show because all the nurses and doctors were killing themselves laughing. And as I drifted off to sleep, that's the last thing I remember. And then I woke up, my throat was really sore, and they had promised me all the ice cream I could eat. Well, they brought this little thimble full of ice cream. And I wolfed it down. I said, give me a second or a third. No way. And I kicked up a fuss. And ever since then, I became rights conscious. <laughs> and concerned about the dignity of people. And no kidding, no kidding. It's a funny story. But I think as a young child, that made me conscious of dignity of people and not being ridiculed and being treated fairly and so on. A matter of justice. I think so. I think so. <laughs> and that led you to law school, obviously, and then doing your BCL at Oxford and then clerking at the Supreme Court. And, and then in your practice, did you at the outset think constitutional and administrative law and this is, this is where my heart is? Yes. I came into my clerkship with Bertha Wilson in the Supreme Court of Canada in 1986-87 very much committed to different law, uh, private law, particularly fiduciary, fiduciary law. Uh, it was the year at the Supreme Court of Canada that turned me on 
to, to constitutional and in particular administrative law. And I carried that passion to uh, my law firms that I worked for for the next 21 years. Was there a particular mentor in your life that helped speed up the pace of your pursuit of becoming a judge or your pursuit of becoming a teacher yourself? I mean, you always struck me as someone who took a great deal of care in mentoring your own students. And I, again, I don't know how you found the time in the practice that you had and the teaching that you were doing while also applying to become a judge at the same time. But you, you spent a good deal of time with students to make sure that we got to be better students, frankly. Well, that's kind of you to say. All I can say is uh, I'm a very strong believer in uh, the moral principle uh, that one should do unto others as they would do unto you. I am the product of some really selfless and amazing mentor. Bertha Wilson was a terrific mentor, God, God rest her soul. Then at Osler Hoskin, my first firm, uh, Edgar Sexton, who was chair of the firm uh, and the litigation leader in the firm, was an amazing mentor who taught me very much about how not just to practice law, but to practice it with passion and skill. Beyond that, as my practice developed, I started working with other lawyers, and uh, they too were mentors. They were senior to me. Lawyers like Ed, Eddie Greenspan, another one who has left us too soon. Uh, Harvey Strasberg, the class action lawyer out of Windsor, just a terrific lawyer and a fantastic human being. And then uh, as I got a little more senior and as I taught at Queen's, you'll recall I had judges down to uh, see the students and judge uh, little moot courts that we organized as part of the course. And a wealth of good mentors there. Uh, I think Marshall Rothstein, who ended up on the Supreme Court of Canada, and others like John I. Laskin, Kathy Feldman. I had an, just uh, an embarrassing number of terrific mentors, and I owe them so much. And so I feel dedicated to giving back, giving back to people I teach, giving back to the public I serve, trying to give to my colleagues as we work together in the office. And every year we have uh, fresh young graduates from law school, and we're trying to give back to them and mentor as well. Well, certainly uh, for my part, it was unreal to be able to argue about when Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act was still in force, to be able to argue about that provision with a, you know, a classmate, Asher Honekman, who is uh, now a, a strong lawyer in his own right and, and sometimes very political in a different way from, <laughs> from my own political leanings. But he, uh, he and I were on opposite sides uh, on arguing Section 13 in front of uh, Justice Rothstein, and to just think at that time, holy, getting an opportunity to argue in front of a Supreme Court justice. Although I, I remembered also my path to law school in some ways was a random occurrence of arguing in front of Justice Corey, who recently passed, obviously, as well. But it was in a moot court through the Osgood Cup, and I didn't know that I didn't really think to participate in this, except that friends at the time were participating and asked if I wanted to be part of the team. And everyone else showed up in suits and ties, and I showed up in a sweater with a stain on the collar or a stain on the sleeve. And we ended up finding our way into the finals because I had a good partner. And I, uh, <laughs> I, I, it was probably that experience in 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 many respects that that led to the decision to go to law school. So it's funny how those moments, you being three and me with a stain on my shirt, that those those individual moments uh, matter so much in our lives and and the path in our lives. You know, uh, I don't want to digress too much, but I will say this, that uh, if, you, if you reflect for a moment on what makes human beings different from other animals, one of the biggies has to be the fact that we're the only species that develops knowledge, know-how, moral principles, and so on. And then we teach to the next generation, passing along the best of our generation, and that generation takes all that has been given and develops it further, sometimes rejecting, sometimes modifying things and developing their own. And 
in a very real way through that process, uh, our species evolves into a higher and higher level of achievement and conduct. And the, the, the core of that is mentoring and teaching. And so if you accept that, then it follows that mentoring and teaching is perhaps the most quintessentially human thing that we can do. And it is in some respects self selfless, but in other respects, for me at least, it can be quite selfish. I, I go into high schools and I answer questions about politics and, and I have a bit of a routine that I do with the students to explain why they should care about politics. And uh, it helps me sharpen some issues in, in some senses where they're asking questions and really sometimes off the wall questions that as I answer on my feet, I find that if I get asked a similar question down the road, I'm better at it. And it's easy to cut my teeth in front of a, a high school students who tend to be a tough audience at times. And, uh, and, and, but you know, a forgiving audience and that there, there aren't reporters in the room. And so it's, uh, it's in some ways selfish to then impart that, uh, impart that knowledge uh, and, and impart that, I don't know, passion for the topics that one cares about with others as well. Right, right. I certainly agree with that. So I want to ask you about South Park, but I won't because uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's maybe unbecoming of, uh, but, I, but I know it's a, it's, it's a show you enjoy, but I... Well, judges are human too, you see. <laughs> there's, there's, there's real That's right. I think it's because we walk into courtrooms with black robes and we look like Darth Vader without the mask, you know, uh, we're intimidating, but in fact, we're all human and we're part of the society we serve. Uh, uh, though you have yet to quote South Park in one of your judgments. Not yet. <laughs> I, I did want to ask though, because it's, it's a debate. I know you've attended at various conferences and, and you've had this kind of debate and the role of judges in our in our society when we talk about the separation of powers there people have very differing views about the role of a judge versus the role of a parliamentarian versus the role of a member of our executive and do you see a strong role for more activist judges in canada i'll, I'll do a lawyer thing right now i'm going to bicker with your question a bit use the word activism or activist in your question and and i actually hate the term because i think for reasons i'll explain judges should be active in some of the things they do my main view and certainly some judges may well disagree with me on this is that the real objection is judges should not move outside of their lane that under the separation of powers the legislatures executive and the judiciary all have their lanes. We all have our role under the constitution to, to discharge. And it's when judges move outside their lane and purport to do things that other branches are doing that I think there's an, a just charge. In my view, in our system, and I think this is reflected in our constitutional arrangements, the people we elect make the laws. And if we don't like them, we toss them out and we get different laws. Elected governments, their, their job is to formulate policy and they're informed by experts and masses of information from hundreds of thousands in the civil service. Judges, on the other hand, have a secretary, a recent law graduate as a clerk, uh, and a well-stocked law library, and, and that's it. When we're deciding issues, we receive only the information that counsel and the parties give to us. And the parties have a stake in the outcome. And the parties before us don't necessarily represent all of the different sides of the debate that may actually exist. Let me turn to judges. All of this, as you can see, is suggesting judges should go easy and stay <laughs> in the lane and not make policy. Uh, judges are drawn from, by law, only one profession, the lawyering and the judges that tend to get appointed are good at that profession, they're good lawyers, which means they're specialist technicians and narrow. And good lawyers, the fact is that they're often well off. They're, they're, they're not exactly looking for charity, they, they live in nice homes and so on. So I, I put this question to you, who should make laws in this country? 
shouldn't be isolated, cloistered, well-off, unelected people from a single profession, the lawyer's profession, who have limited access to information and expertise, or on the other hand, should it be elected accountable people from all walks of life and all income levels, done many things from all sorts of different jobs and professions and experiences who are informed and assisted by a dedicated professional public service of hundreds of thousands of people. Policy is best made by the elected representatives, not by the judges. Right? Don't get me wrong, judges are good at certain things. Here's our lane. I say, you know, judges should stick in our lane. We're good at finding facts from evidence. We're good at determining whether witnesses should be believed. We're good at interpreting laws. We're good at applying laws facts. We're good at affording people fair hearings, but we're not very good lawmakers. That's not my job. That's your job. I, I generally agree, although I have a different view in some respects that I, I will get to in a second. But first, when we look at the making of laws, some laws can be very specific and other laws can be promulgated in a very general way. And some of those general laws are the laws that are the highest in the land. So when we look at our charter that comes into force within, you know, uh, not so long ago in, in the grand scheme of our democracy, and the right to, let's just pick one, but the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, and the right not to be deprived thereof except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. I mean, that's not terribly prescriptive. So you as a judge are being asked by a parliamentarian to not make law per se, but to, you've got a wide interpretive berth to apply that law as you see fit. And if you look at section seven as an example, I mean, you can look at legislative intent that thought it was more of a procedural kind of a right. And almost immediately, the Supreme Court said, no, we're going to imbue it with greater substance and we'll have a substantive interpretation. I favor that substantive interpretation as a citizen of Canada. I, I wonder though, your more deferential view may not. Well, let's talk about the charter, get to the nub of it. And of course, like, like the good lawyer, you've gone straight to the most difficult part <laughs> of, of the point that I'm trying to put across. Let me say a few words before I, I tackle the nub of your question. Uh, the Charter is a hugely important document. As people know, it guaranteed rights and freedoms subject to reasonable limits. It's a, it's a document that seeks an appropriate balance between the two. But the Charter is not an invitation to unelected judges, who are really just lawyers who happen to hold a judicial commission. It's not an invitation to us to invent new rights and make new laws. That again is your job description, not ours. The charter is not an empty vessel for us to pour whatever we want in, nor is it a license for unelected judges to try to solve all the injustices and unfairnesses in the world. I, again, I, I, hate to, I hate to put this on you, but that's in your job description, not ours. It's been said, and this is Justice Gorsuch's line in the Supreme Court of the U.S., judges wear gowns, not capes. We aren't supposed to solve all the injustices and unfairnesses in the world. But we have this thing called the Charter in 1982, April 17, 1982. Three years later, the equality rights provision came into force. So, so what do we do with it? It isn't an empty vessel for us to do whatever we want. You look at the charter guarantees, uh, assuming there's no case law on point, and this was the case back in the 80s when it was working at the Supreme Court, you'd have to look at the history of the right involved, the philosophy behind the right, the existing legal authorities, fundamental philosophies that are revealed by those existing authorities, You'd look at widely accepted time-honored principles and norms resident in our legal system. You might look at acceptable state practices as revealed by longstanding international law. All of these things are constraining things 
They aren't empowering things. They're things that tell us, sure, the language is broad. Sure, the remit under Section 7, life, liberty, and security of the person, as you pointed out, is broad. Sure, it's a broad remit. But the things we look at are things that constrain us. What we're not allowed to do, what is unacceptable is to inject into this what we personally think or to inject our personal political views or what we think is somehow best or to inject what the government wants or what the government thinks it's best. All of that is inadmissible. So, so I accept your thesis that it is a broad remit that's given to the judges, but I still maintain it's a tightly constrained one and we must stay in our lane. As a matter of justice, where there are issues before a court that parliamentarians have not seen fit to resolve, and there are obstacles in my world that prevent us from resolving some difficult issues, and I can point to some easy examples. I mean, on drug policy, I think is, is one example, but on some more specific examples that we've seen the court step in, on assisted dying is, is an easier example where politicians did not want to touch the issue and then the Supreme Court stepped in and used Section 7 to strike the laws down in a way that a previous Supreme Court did not do. For me, personally at least, I ascribe more to the Federalist Papers version of separation of powers, which says there's the purse for the legislature there's the sword for the executive as a matter of foreign policy. So spending is for the legislature, foreign policy for the executive. Outside of those two very significant categories, I'm pretty comfortable with a very active judge that is pushing the boundaries of Section 7 if it means protecting the interests of individual citizens. Well, you are right now. <laughs> and in your lifetime, you've generally seen a judiciary that is rights conscious and perhaps, uh, you know, a judiciary that prefers to ride towards the front of the roller coaster rather than the back. But there have been different times, haven't there? Yeah. You wouldn't be so happy if you had a very shy retiring judiciary or one that was less rights conscious. In the history of this country, and let's go to the United States, you talk about the Federalist Papers in the States, you know, there's the, the, the 1930s era court that waged war against Roosevelt's New Deal. Of course. Uh, so, you know, activist courts cut both ways. So what's that saying? Do not, do not hope for what you wish for. You might get it. <laughs> I don't think you want an activist court. In your lifetime, you may see a different political environment. You want judges to keep to their lane. It's, an, it's an, an important point and one that was made at a class I was at by Jeremy Waldron. And I wondered if it was more of an American view in some respects because they do not have the notwithstanding clause. So where, if a court in our country were to really get a decision wrong, that is very much offside the prevailing views of Canadian society, that we are looked at that and we say, that is unacceptable in our country to have that happen and for, and for if we look to the Lochner era cases uh, in the United States, maybe society says, you can't, you can't do that, judges. In the best interests of Canadians, our parliament and our government is looking out for us. You can't get in the way of that. The government in our country would be able to turn to the notwithstanding clause in a way that in the United States, they have to be even more cautious of judicial review. Right. And I think uh, you said this at the outset uh, of our talk. We're fortunate in this country. We have a largely unpoliticized judiciary. And I'm not just talking about the judiciary itself. I'm talking about how it's regarded. We tend not to, you know, count up the judges on the Supreme Court and say, well, you know, X, Y, and Z were appointed by a conservative party and A, B, and C were appointed by a liberal party. And then the judges stick 
to whoever appointed them. Fortunately, we have um, an extremely professional judiciary that's committed to what I said at the outset about impartiality. Overall, I'm, I do agree with the the general thrust of the argument, which is here is the text provided to us by Parliament, and our job is to take the constraints of this text, the reasonable meaning of this text, and interpret it in, in light of the facts before us, and not to push it beyond what the text can bear. Yeah, I, I think it's an important principle of our democracy that elections matter. And when a government is uh, put in office, they have a mandate to pass the laws that they see fit after appropriate debate, and they pass those laws. My job as a judge is to discern through techniques of interpretation of the legislative language, to discern the genuine meaning of that law and to enforce it enforce it faithfully. A judge should not be vetoing or winnowing down uh, legislation passed by an elected government. So me, I, I'll tell you, I've never voted in a federal election since I was appointed. And that's my own personal commitment to the idea that regardless of who is elected, I will faithfully interpret and enforce the genuine meaning of their laws. And to me, that's that's a cardinal principle. I also, I mentioned the Federalist Papers. The, the other way I think about a more active court, and you talked about a rights focus, and, and I think that is absolutely the appropriate way of, of framing it, because traditionally, courts in our country focused on the division of powers from a constitutional perspective to say, is this in the bailiwick of the province or the bailiwick of the federal government? And we are interpreting the Constitution to determine if this decision is appropriately in fifth and substance, something for the province or something for the feds. And the charter, it seems to me, allows a court to do something very similar, but to say, is this decision to be appropriately in the hands of the federal government to restrict, or is this decision appropriately to be in the hands of the individual citizen? And so now, as opposed to being the arbiter as between one government versus another is now as an arbiter as between individuals through a rights framework and, and their governments. I think that's a fair characterization of, of the task. I would just reiterate that it's a highly constrained task. And as well, the charter has now been enforced. Uh, we're coming up on, what, 35 years? No, 37 years of the charter. Uh, that's a long time. Uh, there are over a thousand Supreme Court cases on the charter. Under any one of the sections, there are many, many, many cases. And that tends to constrain judges as well. So it's far from a free-for-all under the charter. And in some areas, it's, it has become actually quite predictable how cases will come out. I don't want to sound like judges you know, don't have scope for creativity. I think when judges stay in their lane, within their lane, there's tremendous creativity. And, and I think in the area of practices and procedures of courts, and in areas of the common law, like negligence and contract law and so on, that's in our lane as judges. It's judge-made law. And our institutions are judge-influenced. And that's where, coming back to your word activist, I think that's where judges should be activists. We have to take our practices and procedures in our institution and make them responsive to contemporary developments and change. Same for the common law. So, for instance, in the last eight years or so, um, the Ontario Court of Appeal created a new tort called intrusion upon seclusion, very important tort to protect privacy interests. I, um, in the Federal Court of Appeal, created a new public law tort to regret, re redress wrongs done to citizens by, by governments. So, you know, far from being just an orthodox conservative group of people that just apply things by rote and never change, torts are actually increasingly dynamic 
to serve the ever-changing needs of the people they serve. There's a strong policy component to that as well in many respects. So in some instances, your job is to look to the case before you and to say, what is fair, what is right, and how do I balance the interests before me based on the facts before me? And yet, that individual decision, in some cases with the creation of a, of a novel cause of action, can have far-reaching consequences, which I presume that's where we would step in should that, in, that novel cause of action cause some problems as a matter of policy, that then that is our purview to step in and, and correct it. Exactly right. The legislator, in our system, the separation of powers of, of legislators, members of the executive, and judges, in, in this system, it's subject to the Constitution of Canada. Legislators can oust any any uh, things that the other branches do. So if you don't like the new public law tort or, or the new tort of intrusion upon seclusion, you can pass legislation to to regulate it, and uh, the legislator, their word is supreme, subject to the Constitution of Canada, uh, they prevail. All the more reason for your heightened sense of deference in a constitutional setting where it's not so, I, I, I say the notwithstanding clause, but it is not so easy to quickly turn to that provision and say, we're going to reverse what the, what the court has done. So all the more reason for for care, I, I think, is a, is a fair way to put it. I think the image of all of us staying in our lanes is a good one, and, and being very reluctant to cross that dotted line and get into someone else's lane. We all have a job to do under the separation of powers, and the system works best when we respect each other's roles and allow each to, to operate in a way that you know, is, is, is consonant with our constitutional traditions, and also serves the people who pay us. And then the debate centers on the uh, the width of one's lane. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. Uh, I, I would suggest, you know, we could get into a debate about how wide the lanes are and whose lane is bigger. Uh, I just know where where my lane is, and I, I really never want to pick up your pen, mate. You're the legislator. You're going to draft the laws. I'm going to interpret and apply them, or cross them out if they're unconstitutional. <laughs> yeah, that's right. As I hope, as I hope you do, as I say, to move a little bit, you are a member of the Federal Court of Appeal. Yes. It is. I've not argued in front of the Federal Court of Appeal or the Federal Court uh, more generally, but as someone who did argue at the Commercial List in Toronto and in the civil system in Toronto, you seem to live in a civilized court in a way that I did not. That's nice to hear. What, what do you mean by civilized? I mean, the fights in relation to scheduling in Ontario, at least, I can't speak to other provinces, but everything is bogged down in Toronto. Everything is so slow in the, in the civil system as a matter of scheduling. I would say people bring motions to, to bleed cases dry and they are not dealt with in a quick enough way in our civil system in Ontario. We don't have an electronic system in a way that we should, except at the appellate levels. It just doesn't move quickly enough. And then I see the federal court, which, as I say, I, I was not an active participant in front of, but as a passive observer, as a law student at least, scheduling happened quickly. Cases were argued quickly. Decisions were rendered quickly. It's like night and day comparing the two systems. Well, that's music to my ears, and I thank you very much. We've worked very, very hard to try and make our system serve the people as best as it can. Uh, we're a system of courts set up across the country to interpret and apply federal law, and we have court courthouses all across the country and all the major centers from coast to coast to coast. We uh, review over 2,500 federal decision makers. Some of them are very well known, like the CRTC, the Industrial Relations Board, the Competition Tribunal, Canadian Judicial Council, the Canada Transportation Agency, you name it. And we deal with all sorts of things, human rights, tax, indigenous law, labor relations, environmental law, national security, access to information, you name it. It's a wide thing. But despite those challenges, oh, and also we serve the public in French and English across the country, and we're by jewel. We uh, apply 
the common law system and also the civil law system that exists in Quebec. So it's a pretty ambitious undertaking, all designed to ensure the uniform and fair application of federal laws. We have worked very hard to, to create a, a set of procedural rules that's as simple as it can possibly be, and to create a registry whose mission is first and foremost to serve the public and accomplish the objective of ensuring that proceedings are heard uh, as quickly as possible. I'm proud to say we do believe in innovation. We've had video conferencing for, for decades now. It's been open to parties to ask for it. Um, we did video conferencing as, as early as the 80s. Uh, there wasn't much demand for it, but it was there. Recently, I, I had the uh, privilege of case managing the Trans Mountain Pipeline case in the summer. A massive case, as you appreciate it, with huge significance. And it was in, everyone accepted that it was in the public interest to have it move quickly. This was the review of the federal government's decision to approve the pipeline. So we had many parties appear and tens of thousands of documents. And I managed that proceeding. I made it totally electronic. And we had it ready within a handful of weeks. In our court, culturally, our corporate culture here is to try to do things as, as quickly and as efficiently as we can. Because first and foremost, we serve the public. We have challenges. You know, we could use some more judges. We're very short-staffed and overworked. But despite these challenges, we do our best. And it's wonderful to hear that you think we're a good court. Well, I hope that other courts, I know that they are trying to modernize in the course of this pandemic, and I hope that those modernization efforts stick. I, I remember, not a significant case by any means, but I was arguing a case at the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, and I had the opportunity to interview or cross-examine, I should say, former mayor of Niagara-on-the-Lake, and it was all done over the phone, and I got to eat a sandwich while cross-examining wear jeans on my couch and eat a sandwich while doing the cross-examination. I thought, now this is the life. <laughs> well, you know, the interesting thing about courts and change is I think the biggest obstacle to electronic courts and doing things online was actually not the courts themselves. I think it was counsel, particularly senior counsel who weren't particularly computer literate. And maybe this pandemic has resulted in a little bit of a sea change and people are going to accept the idea of, of electronic hearings. Uh, it, it would probably make things run more smoothly. I must say, though, there's no substitute for the in-person, face-to-face interaction in the courtroom. There's a high level of engagement, and I think it is a better quality of hearing. But video hearings are, are certainly adequate to meet legal thresholds. What I learned most in your class, actually, that was helpful in my short career, as it were, I mean, was the being on your feet to quickly answer questions, because you go in as a young lawyer thinking, I'll have my 10 minutes to present, and there will be no interruptions, and they will listen to every word that I say, and it will be so very persuasive, and you quickly learn that within minute one, there's a question, and your presentation is derailed, and so you're best off, you know the case, you are the educator, and you are there to answer their questions first and foremost. And that was one of the key takeaways and your class was very helpful for that reason. Well, that's a great advocacy tip and from your lips to all counsel's ears, being prepared in court is the key to answer the questions that the judge has. You see, you file your, as you know, you file your written material, including um, your submission, why your client should win. We get all of that. Uh, in my court a good four weeks before the hearing. And we read it and study it and reread it and do our own research. So when lawyers come into the courtroom, uh, we don't need a heck of a lot of educating. We're, we're ready to go. And it's really an opportunity for us to, to ask questions, to acquaint each counsel with the problems in their case, to try and get responses out of them so that we can end up, you know, taking all of the submissions, synthesizing them, thinking about them further, and make the best possible decision on the facts and the law. That's our job. My last question for you is in relation to dissents. So we have 
now I might have this wrong, but on my reading of case law in earlier days, and we'll take charter jurisprudence as an example, there were more dissents, there were concurrences, there were a range of different judgments. And under the McLaughlin court, we saw a greater degree of unanimity and we saw a greater, we, we didn't see the same level of concurrences at, at a minimum. And as someone who has faced all sorts of different pressures in the course of my own career of occasional dissent, I wonder what it's like to dissent in your world and, and how that works. At a personal level, uh, I've always said that dissents are good for the soul. You see, <laughs> in, in appeal court like mine, uh, we sit as three people. So when I write reasons, if I'm the person who's write the reasons of the court after we hear the argument, uh, I'm trying to write them to express, almost like a group report, to express the views of the three judges. And, and so I'm very mindful when I write those of what my other colleagues think is important, because after all, I want them to subscribe, to agree to the reasons. Dissents are good for the soul because your other two colleagues aren't with you. You're writing alone, and you get to speak exactly what you think. Now, within limits, I mean, you don't want to bring the institution into disrepute or hurt your own reputation. So it's not exactly a free speech moment. But there's no question that you get to express in a much more genuine way what you think. Dissents are really important. Dissents sometimes become the law. Sometimes later panels, particularly in the Supreme Court of Canada, are influenced by a dissent to tweak the law or sometimes to change their course completely. Uh, in 1987, the Supreme Court released three cases that said that under Section 2D of the Charter, Freedom of Association, that the right to collectively bargain did not get coverage under that, under that freedom. Uh, the dissent said no. I remember dissents by uh, Justice Dixon in those cases. Well, guess what? In 2015, they, the court picks up on the dissent and completely changes the law. Tell you something else that dissent does that's really interesting, uh, and this is more applicable to the Supreme Court of Canada. When the majority writes a decision and there's a dissent, and the dissent scores a few punches, a few good points, it's almost like a warning label on medicine. And so judges that apply the majority decision are bound by it, but their enthusiasm in applying it may be tempered by the fact that the dissent has scored a few points. Now, that's kind of just the real politics of, of what sure. takes place. So a clear, robust, unanimous decision of the Supreme Court will be applied and applied very faithfully according to its spirit. So will a majority decision, but a really strong dissent? I think in the real world, a strong dissent can kind of temper one's enthusiasm. Um, and we don't see concurrences to the extent that we used to. I mean, we right. see your point about dissents is, is a sound one in the sense I, I think of, I mean, we've talked about assisted dying, but you look at the Rodriguez case that right. was, uh, that, that dissent became a unanimous right. majority decision in, in Carter. You see with the prostitution reference to Bedford, the dissent ultimately win the day. Right. But concurrences too, a very strongly written concurrence. I think of Morgenthaler and your mentor, Bertha Wilson, she won the day. And right. she won the day not only as a judge, but her arguments won, I think, the political day as well. I think so. The law, in a way, is very living, and it's full of eddies and currents and countercurrents. And it evolves over time. And the beauty of the thing is, you know, the problems that courts face are not susceptible to easy solutions. And people often think that courts solve problems. Uh, in a whole host of difficult situations, courts really venture partial or incomplete solutions to problems 
And over time, as different panels of judges look at the jurisprudence and modify and tweak, the solutions get better and better and better. It's kind of wrong to think that when an issue goes to the Supreme Court of Canada, it's dealt with once and for all. Sometimes the court is a lot more nuanced in its, in its output. And that's the beauty of the system, because a lot of these questions that come before courts are not susceptible to easy answers. They deserve a more careful, nuanced, evolutionary approach. And sometimes, back to the drawing board, we, we've seen with the Ontario Court of Appeal and its focus on, say, summary judgments and rules of civil procedure, right. having to look at the way they interpreted the rules, applied at the lower courts, and say, well, actually, let's take another hack at this because it, it's not working out as, as efficiently as we might have wanted in the first instance. Yes, that's so, right. I think in the end, what, what has to guide our judiciary is doctrine. And doctrine is not a stable thing, but we have to be very, very mindful of how to shape that doctrine to address contemporary problems and, frankly, problems that are very dynamic, that shift and evolve with time. And so far from being more abundant, stable places, courts are actually very exciting places where we tweak, we adjust, all in a sensible way, and all to serve the people and make our society better. And in that, our branch of government is like the other branches of government. Ultimately, we're accountable to the people and people we serve. Well, I'm glad you are where you are, and you have given no comment on your part, but you now have given me pause when you make the case that judges and the advocacy model that is a court is not well designed for large-scale policy solutions. It does give me pause about the CRDC, but no comment <laughs> on your part, because that uh, CRDC is ultimately, those decisions come before you. That's uh, right. David, I, I really appreciate your time. I Honestly, I, I wouldn't have been in some respects doing what I'm doing, but for uh, your involvement in, in my life. I mean, I certainly pursued the BCL program in your footsteps in many ways, and I wouldn't be doing this if I hadn't had that experience in all likelihood. So I really appreciate everything you've done for me in life, but also I know other students feel the same way. So thank you, and, and thanks for your time. You're most welcome, and thank you. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Uncommons. Thanks to David for his time, and also for all of his help over the years. Remember to subscribe at uncommons.ca for future episodes.